Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll have those verses up in a second here. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. As Jake read, you have worked and magnified your, your word above all your name. What a profound statement from your word, Father. That you would lift up your word because it is as true as you are. You speak it and it comes to pass. You say it and it happens. And so as we open your word tonight, we, we need to stop, Lord, right here and now and recognize this is a profound thing. To be able to read your words in Scripture. As spoken through Moses, yes, Lord, and inspired by your servant as he preaches the word, but it is your heart, your word, your name, your person that we, that we pursue, that we love, that we want to know, that we bless. And so we thank you for your word to us tonight, and we simply ask, Lord, that you would write it on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so Deuteronomy 8, 9, and 10 tonight. There's a section in the middle that we're just going to let Moses preach. Because, like I said Sunday, this guy can preach. So we'll allow him that, that time to do that. But before we get going, you know, the average person spends his or her life doing things that please the self. And I'm not even talking about selfishness. I mean, that, that's a different category. I'm just talking about we all have this tendency to want to do things that make us feel better about who we are. That please the self. Even good and charitable and worthy things are often done because when we do them, ah, it feels good. I, I like how myself reacts. I, I feel satisfied. And so believer and non-believer in Jesus alike, there's something in us that wants the self to be satisfied. Now, in addition to that, the average person also wants to live this earthly life as long as possible. Although I'm not always sure why. <laughs> but to, to live to feel the self-satisfaction and to live as long as possible. Live long, please self. But the biblical perspective is profoundly different. It just completely rocks that mentality. The biblical perspective, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul touches on both of these as he says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be home with the Lord. Paul says, if it's my call, I'm out of here. I don't want a long life. I want to be long living with Jesus at home. That's, that's the desire. That's the, well, that's the spirit-led desires to be with him because that's where our hearts really ultimately need to be. But Paul also says, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Live long, please self. No, no. Live for him, to him, and please the Lord. That's the biblical perspective. Very simply put, a life aimed at pleasing God and being with Jesus. And it flies in the face of the natural man or woman. It's not the way we typically think. And to get there, to be a God-pleaser desiring to be with Jesus requires one thing, less you know what it is, but I'm not going to totally put you on the spot. Faith. Faith is required. Now, Les has been, when he subs in, has been taking us through a faith series, I think now for several years. 
he can't get off this whole idea of faith. Well, don't. Faith is required because faith takes me out of the natural and into the spiritual man. Faith helps me to realize, Ephesians 5, verse 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, but not to please self. No, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That changes everything. You know those bright, shining, clear-headed moments in our lives where we actually live to please the Lord? And how good that feels, even for the self. How right that is. Hebrews eleven six, however, says, without faith it's impossible to do what? To please him. So if I want to please him, I'm going to have to have faith because I can't please him unless I've got faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By contrast, unbelief always puts the self at the center. It's always about coming back to what I want, my desire, my timetable, my, my pleasures, my pleasing, myself. It can be my self-protection, wanting to live long on the earth. It can be my self-pleasing, just wanting to feel some satisfaction. But faith goes after God at any risk. Faith wants to please God, whatever the cost. So, for the believer, it comes down to one very simple question that we will seek to have a sense about by the end tonight. And that question is, Lord, what pleases you? Lord, what pleases you? What pleases you in, in your life circumstance? Lord, what pleases you? What's your pleasure, Father, rather than what pleases self? And listen, learning what pleases God ultimately changes me. The pleasure of the Lord, seeking to please him, changes my heart. It changes my attitude. It changes my outlook. It gives me a completely different perspective on life and eternity. Now, the reason I'm starting with all this is as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 8, the book the Jews call These Are the Words, Moses is going to look back again as he did in the retrospective. Remember, the first four chapters of Deuteronomy are a retrospective as he recalls and recounts what happened from Egypt all the way to the promised land, to the border where they now stand. And now he's preaching not the retrospective, but he's preaching the relevance of the law. He's really starting to warm up to it. He'll get into it heavily after tonight in chapters 11 and following, the relevance of the law. But to get rolling in this, he reaches back again. But this time to shed light on the learning process, learning what it is that pleases God. The learning process of faith on the journey. And I'm going to start out by describing it with three words. Three words, and you can jot these down. They're very easy to remember. Bread, lead, and fed. Bread, lead, and fed. Bread. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, and here's why, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart. By the way, God knows. God knew what was in their hearts just as he knows what's in our hearts. That's not the point of the test. The point is that they would know what was in their hearts. 
to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He, verse 3, humbled you. He let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which your father, which, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. In other words, no one had ever had anything like this before. And he says that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And suddenly we realize the manna wasn't provision. The manna was a parable. The manna was a living parable in the terrible wilderness. That was the point all along. That they would have the manna every morning. They'd wake up and the parable would be played out before them. A life lesson every day. They come out of the tent, gather those sweet, flaky, honeyed wafers. And then they take them and they, the Bible tells us, ground them or beat them or boil them or bake them. Supernatural, all-purpose flour, if you will. And then they subsisted on this bread of heaven, Jesus called it. And as they did so, this was a parable of the nutritional value of God's word. That was the point the whole time, the word of God. And yes, verse 3 was Jesus' first response to the tempter in the wilderness when he himself was in the wilderness, coincidentally, (laughs) 40 days. 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days Jesus was in the wilderness as a parallel of sorts and the very first temptation out the gate. If you're the son of God, Matthew 4, 3, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Bread. It's not about the bread. Manna. It wasn't about the manna. It was a parable for the word, what comes out of the mouth of God. Food for the heart, not just for the belly. Verse 4. I like this. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Who can say that? (laughs) Nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Deuteronomy 29, verse 5, Jesus, or Moses says at the end of this sermon, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. So bread was the first point. Second, lead. Lead. He talks about the foot not swelling. He talks about in chapter 29, the sandal is not worn out. I bought a pair of sandals recently. Actually, two pair, because one wasn't enough. And I was really excited about this. I, I have high arches. This is one of those personal things about my life that you get to now know. I've got high, like, ballet foot arches that my daughters would kill for. I don't dance, and I do not wear tights. But, but I have high arches. And I'll sit there with my, with my socks on in the evening, and Naomi will b- walk by and just glare at me. Because I've got these, you know. But that's a, that's a foot thing. So i got to get shoes that have some good arch support. So I started to get on the internet and start looking for these, these sandals, and I found them. Reef fanning sandals. Guys, look them up. They're so cool. Reef fanning. They've got the amazing arch support, and better yet, on, on the sole underneath, they've got a bottle opener. I mean, how do you beat this? <laughs> I'm so excited because when we get to Africa, Cheryl's telling me all the time, you get bottles that you got to have a bottle opener, and oftentimes there's not a bottle opener around. I'm just going to go, hey, Christopher, (laughs) pop, there you go. 
if, you know, if he wants to drink it after it's been popped open by the sole of my foot. But that's a different issue. Verse 4, get this, verse 4 is more than a pair of reefs or tevas. When he says in verse 4, your foot did not swell these 40 years, or verse 5 of chapter 29, your sandal is not worn out on your foot. Listen, listen, he says two things there that are different. Your foot is not swollen, and your sandal didn't wear out. It's not the same thing, it's two different things. Manna, as we mentioned before, obviously prevented malnutrition, which is why their feet did not swell. You get malnourished, you have a tendency to have swelling in the feet, didn't happen. Why? Because the manna was what they needed. The manna had the, the vitamins and the nutrients that was necessary. But what's really interesting, and the reason I read verse 5 of chapter 29, is their very sandals and clothing stood the test of time. All we can do, taking this at face value, is assume that their clothes lasted 40 years. I've got memories of the coolest hang ten shirt. I think I've mentioned it here before. It's a brown shirt with little orange feet right there. I'd give anything to find that shirt again. I had it when I was 10 years old. I'm sure it wouldn't fit, but I'd frame it and hang it up on the wall. Clothes that last 40 years, are you kidding me? Your clothes didn't wear out. Your sandals are as good as they were at the beginning in this harsh wilderness climate. See, we're not even talking about a good climate where where clothes can last a while. We're talking about the wilderness and the heat and the dryness, and they should have been flaking off of their bodies, but they lasted Why does Moses mention this? Because he's giving supernatural proof of the superintendence of God that is so immediate and so personal that it goes right to their very clothes and the shoes on their feet, their sandals. That as they went 40 years through the wilderness, not only did God provide the manna, which was a parable of his word, but he provided for them physically in such a basic thing as their clothes and their shoes, the supernatural superintendence of God. I like that word. That's my buzzword this week, superintendence. God is my superintendent. He cares. He is engaged. He is looking over. He is involved And and that type of superintendence, as Moses shares this, it gives context to all the other words that he says about the 40-year journey, like discipline, testing, humbling. We realize by God's supernatural superintendence, his care for his people, that God's intention wasn't just bread to get him by, but that they might learn to be led. Not just bread, but being led That is, that he might feed their faith. Word number three, fed. Bread led and fed. Verse seven, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Man, when you, when you get to the good land that feeds you, faith is required, I think, even more than, than on the journey. Why? Because when we get into the good land that feeds us, they were to remember the good hand that fed them. 
when we're in the, when, when it's all going well, you know, when I'm satisfied, all my prayers are answered, you know, that's the time that it's a little dicey because that's the time when I forget to trust. That's the time when I really don't need faith because I got everything I need right here in this good land. I don't know about you, but I read these verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, and man, that could describe America, this good land, oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains, majesty above the fruited plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crowned by good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. What's the problem today with this country? It's not that it's not a good land. It's that the people have forgotten to, to believe and trust in the Lord. They've forgotten where our feeding came from. And this becomes even more clear as Moses continues. But the, the right, the good, and the thankful response to the good hand of the Lord bringing them into the land, the good hand that has so richly blessed them, the right response is, is to praise him, to remember him, to bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But in that good land, man... Think about it this way. First and second generation, even second generation immigrants have a tendency to be so thankful because they remember where they were. First gen immigrants especially, when they come into a new land, a good land, oh, they remember what it was like. Second generation, they hear the stories of what it was like and how much better it could be here because they're vividly aware from whence they have come. That's why Moses is pulling this up again, that they might remember from whence they have come. Skip ahead to chapter 10, look at verse 19. Deuteronomy 10, 19. The Lord through Moses says, so show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember every one of us from whence we have come. And I'm not talking about your previous country before coming to America, because most of us have been here. And if you have come from a previous country, that's, that's well and good, but that's, that's not the concern here. We need to remember from whence we have come how the bread led and fed us to this point. Jesus the bread, and he is obviously the point. I am the bread of life, John chapter 6, verse 48. Your fathers, Jesus said, ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the manna wasn't just a living parable of God's provision. It was a living parable of God's Christ. And Jesus owns that. I love how Jesus just owns the whole thing. It's always all about him. Well, yes, it should be. It truly is about him. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, but God, Ephesians 2 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? Remember from whence you have come that we were all aliens strangers to salvation, aliens to grace. Where have we come from? We have been led and fed by the bread so that now we have this great salvation. But one of the greatest threats to a thankful heart 
is too much blessing too soon for too long. I know that sounds a little weird, but the longer I go with the ease of life right now, the more my thankful heart is in danger of becoming self-pleasing rather than God-pleasing. Go back and look at verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11. Beware, Moses says, that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Do you realize that the commandments of the Mosaic law were as much about keeping them focused on God and reminding them what he had done for them as they were about making the people righteous? All the commandments of Scripture, as we follow them, as, they remem- as we remember them, They draw us in our relationship to God. They keep us on track with the Lord. They help us to remember what he did to get us to where we are. He says, verse 12, otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, and I might add Rick's verse in here would be, when you become fat, dumb, and happy, Be careful, verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. To do good for you in the end. Way over in the book of of Hebrews, and I meant to jot this down earlier, but let me just read it to you. Hebrews chapter three. This was read this morning, and it was just so perfect. Verse five Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Firm to the end. Listen again to what Moses says. He did all these things that he might humble you, verse 16, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. In the end, that was the whole point. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, verse 17, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long for us to forget the blessings and the benefits of following the Lord by faith. When we really have to follow him, when we have to trust him, it's easy to, when we get out of that place, it's easy to forget having been there. When we don't have to trust him, as I said, when everything's going well, it's easy for faith to slide because unnecessary. What do I have to trust him for? I got everything I need. But when I don't, the blessings, the benefits that come when we trust in him, when we follow him, when we believe in him, that's the point of the entire 40-year exercise, to develop faith through humble dependency on the Lord. And you might ask, okay, that's wonderful, but to what end? Yours, mine, as Moses says again in verse 16, to do good for you in the end. Literally, it's at your end. The whole plan of God, listen, your life and mine right now, set aside Moses and the children of Israel. This is so immediately practical. Your life and mine right now are about what will happen at the end. 
That's what's going on. That's where he's getting us. I heard someone say the other day, made the comment about realizing all, everything in my life had come to this point. That all these things that had happened to me had come to this point. And he was talking about, this guy was talking about a ministry that he had brought to. Everything lined up to bring him to this point. And I remember hearing that, I heard that and went, no, uh-uh, no, that's not the point. You may have had a profound moment of faith in your life, and you might say, everything came to this point. And I would say, no, 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 everything is about your end. The end of your life when you stand before the Lord. When we're either caught up or when we die and our spirit goes home to be with the Lord, it's all about that final point. Some say, you know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. No, no, it's the destination. With Jesus, it is the destination. The journey is all about getting you there, and until the journey's over, it's all about getting you there. That doesn't mean we don't stop and smell the flowers along the way. It doesn't mean we're not thankful for what God is doing, but the point is the end. The good is the finality. When I am with the Lord, your end, my end, Moses says to do good for you in the end. The end game is the end of life as we know it here and now. The goal is the finish line. Ask a runner on a track, hey, what's best for you? Running the lap or breaking the tape? Any runner who says running the lap is an idiot. That's not the best part. The best part is breaking the tape. That's what you run for, to win the race. That's why Paul said run to win. Run for the end goal, the prize. Now, the journey's vital, but without the destination, what's the point? The question is, how are we going to be when we get there? How's this world going to be when it gets to the end of this age? Jesus says when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Verse 18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. It shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. I love that Moses doesn't mince words. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven. He's quoting the people when their faith failed back at Kadesh Barnea, by the way. Oh, we saw their cities are fortified to the heavens. So now Moses is using the same phrase. Think a little sarcastically, possibly. Fortified to the heavens, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, who you know and whom you have heard it was said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? That's what they said at Kadesh Barnea, the ten, you know, fearful spies. When all the people failed, Moses is quoting them, but he says in verse 3, know therefore today, it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He'll destroy them, and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. Hear, O Israel. Did you catch it? Verse 1 of chapter 9. Shema. The Shema. The Shema of, of chapter 6 that we already studied and looked at um, last week. 
Hear, O Israel. Moses is going to use that phrase four times, and it's significant to consider those four times real quickly. Four times in this sermon, four times in Deuteronomy, Moses will say, Shema. Hear, O Israel. Shema, Israel. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord your God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Hear, O Israel. The first time he says it, it is here to obey. Here to obey. Hear, O Israel. The second time he says it, Chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So here to obey, and now here to love. Listen to love. Here to obey, Moses says, Shema, Israel, And then listen to love. And then number three, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Actually, this is number four, because number three is right here in our text of chapter 9. So number 4 is Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 3. The priest shall say to them, Shema O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them for the Lord your God is the one who goes before you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So here to obey, listen to love and the fourth time he says Shema is Hear not to fear. Hear not to fear. Hear to obey. Listen to love. Hear not to fear. And then the third time is right here. Hear, O Israel, in chapter 9, verse 1. Hear to be aware. Hear to be aware of what? Of the Lord your God in your life. Because note this, every one of the four times when he says, hear, O Israel, he immediately follows it by the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, listen up. And then he follows it by the Lord your God. Remember, remember, Shema means to hear with intent to obey. It's not just listen. It's listen and act on what you hear. And we listen to the Lord our God. You want to hear the Lord in your life? Talk about this a lot. I want to hear God. I want to hear the voice of God. Why can't I hear God better? Listen with intent to obey. And God knows the heart. And he knows if our desire to hear him is because we truly want to obey him or because we really want him to do what we want him to do. Lord, I'm waiting to hear from you to answer the question that you and I both know the answer, the right answer. I have. Just tell me what my answer is, the one I want. That's not listening with intent to obey. Shema, listen with intent to obey, to do as he says, to please him. Notice also in verse 3, he says, it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. And that phrase, consuming fire, is used eight times in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. It's actually used for God. It's used to speak of his tongue. His tongue is a consuming fire. His voice is a consuming fire. His judgments are a consuming fire. His righteousness is a consuming fire. And we see that eight times. By the way, side note, eight in the Bible is a number for eternity or infinity. Lay the eight on its side. It's the symbol of infinity. But it is in the Bible. Every time we see things in eights, it tends to be on into eternity. 
And we hear God is a consuming fire. God's all-consuming. He consumes everything that comes to him. Which is why, faith-wise, he's not looking for half-hearted believers. He wants your whole heart. He will consume all of you because he desires you so much. Our God's a consuming fire. And so from Sinai, when it is first spoken, all the way to the kingdom, our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. From Sinai to the book of Hebrews, he's a consuming fire. Verse 4, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It's not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land. It's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. In order to confirm the oath, or literally the word, which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, know then, Moses hammers this point home, It is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. (laughs) I just don't preach that way. I try not to. Try to include myself in any judgment, you know. Moses, man, he gets after it. You stubborn people. Who in the world do you think you are that you would claim your own righteousness is what you brought you in to the land? Let's be humbly clear, Israel. Moses gives two reasons for them coming into the land. Two reasons in these verses. Number one, to drive out the wickedness already there. And secondly, to confirm the word God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Neither of those reasons have anything to do with the behavior or the righteousness of the Jewish people. It's all about what the Lord is doing. Again, the first reason, to drive out wickedness. The second reason, to confirm his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I stop and point that out because... It's the same with us. Same thing. We're not going to heaven because of our righteousness. We're not coming into the good land because we've done the good thing. No, no. Right now, think of it this way. The church exists in the world. If you're followers of Jesus in the church, not the bridge, the church. The bridge is just a speck of the larger church. And the church in the world today exists not for or by our righteousness, but because God, for now, is restraining wickedness. For Israel, it was that they would go in and drive out evil. For us in this day, it is the restraint of wickedness on the earth. The church is part of that. Not because we're so good, but because the Holy Spirit within us pushes back against the evil that is in this world. And you all know, we're watching, we're seeing these things happen. It seems like evil's really pushing back itself, trying to, you know, muscle its way in and force what it wants, what it desires, sin and and wickedness in the world. But the church is here to push back. How do you know? 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, Paul says, you know what restrains him, the Antichrist, evil, wickedness, the flood of wickedness that will come at the end of the age? You know what restrains him now. So that in his time, he will be revealed. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Remember the parable? Not really a parable, actually, but the teaching of Jesus on Sunday that we talked about? About the demon that's in the house, the unclean spirit, and and it's driven out, and the house is swept and put in order. The demon comes back and finds it swept and put in order, grabs seven demons worse than he is, and comes in and takes the house. Why? Because while swept, it was empty. Right now, the very fact that the church is in the world and the Holy Spirit is in the church, evil is restrained. Can you even imagine what this world will be like when the church is caught up? When the Spirit departs with the church, when the restraining influence is removed and there is no restraint? That's when suddenly there will be a void and emptiness and evil will flood. And that time of tribulation is, is going to be horrific on planet Earth. The church exists in the world not because of our righteousness, but because of wickedness in the world. And secondly, the church exists in the world because the Lord is confirming His word. What word? His covenant word to you and to me. His new covenant word. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus and the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body for, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Manna, bread from heaven, bread, this is me, he says. That's what this is about. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we keep doing it every time we gather. Because why would we not want to proclaim his death until he comes? That covenant promise. We exist in the world, and this is good for me to think, because, man, it's so easy to slide into self-righteousness. Not even intentionally. You know, to look around the church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and go, these are the good people. (laughs) You know, we're the ones that have it together. Praise the Lord for us. Right, Bill? You and me, man, that's what this world needs. No, no. We are caught up in a great, glorious, grace-driven work of God that is restraining wickedness so people can get saved and is proving in us, in a... In a guy like me, that God keeps his word. He keeps his covenant. So as Israel came into the land, God said, I'm keeping my word to Abraham, and you guys are driving out the wickedness. And right now for the church and the world, same thing. With all humbleness, we are caught up in the righteous covenant-keeping work of Christ Jesus within us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 Paul says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And women, that doesn't mean you're off the hook because every man is every anthropos. It's everyone. It's every human. We are admonishing every human. We are teaching every human with all wisdom so that we may present every human complete in Christ. This is not of ourselves. This is of Christ. Now, to further cement the humility in this people, 
Moses goes after their rebellion and begins to recount what happened at Mount Sinai in verse 7. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived in this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord God, which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Verse 10, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on that day or on the day of the assembly. I love how he describes it. And I, I can't even imagine what Moses saw. Moses didn't say the face of God, right? Because if he had seen the face of God, he would have died instantly. God said, I'll let you see the backside of my glory. I'll go by, and as my glory is trailing off, you can see that. And I'll proclaim my goodness to you. But when it came to the Ten Commandments, first time, God presented the stone tablets. Second time, Moses had to cut the tablets out himself and haul them up the mountain for God to write on. But the first time, God presents the tablets. And Moses says, and I love the description, these commands were written with the finger of God. What did that look like? You know, was it Cecil B. DeMille's idea? You know, the spinning fireball and, and like you'd shoot a fire, and the words appear with the fire coming out. You know, I don't think so. I don't know, he doesn't say that he wrote with the fire of God. Though our God is a consuming fire, it was his finger that wrote. And I just think that's fascinating. Think about that. The, the, the Ten Commandments were autographed by God. Handwritten, finger-written by the Lord himself. Wouldn't it be great? I'm thinking, I, I wanna, when I get to heaven, one of the first things I'm going to ask for Jesus is if he'll sign my Bible. <laughs> I just think that'd be cool. You know? Go up to someone and go, hey, I got a signed copy. <laughs> That's what the Ten Commandments were signed by the Lord. And, and after all, I'm, I'm going to ask Jesus because he did say, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, right? So it's all about him, but the Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God. Now, now think about what that means. That means that is legitimate extraterrestrial contact. I, I'm, I'm being completely serious. That an extraterrestrial and other earthly, a spiritual being made contact with physical earth. God wrote with his finger. God is spirit, Jesus said. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Somehow his spirit showed a finger writing these Ten Commandments. It, it, the invisible creator inscribing visible created stone. The finger of God. Writing by the way, in human language, so human beings could know the Lord. He, he crosses this, this barrier of sorts. Later on, the finger of God appeared and wrote judgment on the king's palace in Babylon, Deuteron or Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. Now, that's another scene I would love to see because basically it says Belshazzar, the stupid ruler, sitting there in the time, drunk half out of his mind, wet himself when he saw it. Read it. 
Daniel chapter 5, that's what happened. His hip joints went slack. <laughs> King James code for he wet himself. Anyway, this hand appears out of nowhere, begins to write judgment on the wall. Finger of God. Same finger that wrote the commandments, which ultimately judge, now writes judgment on the wall of the palace of Babylon. And then, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Suddenly, God was born with tiny little fingers. <laughs> Amazing. Fingers that he would eat with and, and grasp with and, and write with. I don't know, maybe catch with and throw a ball with. Fingers, fingers of God, mind you, that would break bread, pour wine, pass these things around. Fingers that would touch a leper. Fingers that would bless children. Fingers that would heal the sick, embrace the broken, and ultimately go up on a cross. The fingers of God. But, but before that, in the dust of the temple court, you know the story, John chapter 8. Jesus stooped down and with his finger, he wrote on the ground, the finger of God. We don't know what he wrote, but every voice raised in condemnation on that morning in the temple was silenced and judged. And from oldest to youngest, they all walked away. And yet, an adulterous woman also walked away absolved by the finger of God. The finger of God has something else to write, but hold that thought. I'll come back to it in just a minute. Picking up now in verse 11 of chapter 9, and this is the part where we're going to just give it some narrative space. Let Moses preach to us, so just listen for a bit. It came about at the end of 40 days and nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go down from here quickly, for your people whom you have brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image for themselves. The Lord spoke further to me, Moses says, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire, blazing with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I saw you, and indeed, that you had sinned, indeed, against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. I think it's appropriate that Moses broke the law because they were breaking the law. I fell down before the Lord as at the first, 40 days and nights. Notice that? I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, so I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. And I took your sinful thing, literally I took your sin, the calf which you had made, 
and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. Here Moses omits the fact that he made them drink it. Again, verse 22, at Tabera and at Massa and at Kibrat Hataava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and possess the land which I have given you, you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. Now, verses 22 through 24 are an aside, and he goes right back to Sinai, verse 25. So I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and nights, which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us may say, Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain And make an ark of wood for yourself, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut out the two tablets of stone like the former ones and went up the mountain with the two tablets. Suddenly there's a burden involved now. When God offered his law in the first place, it was not to be a burdensome thing, but they broke the law before they even received the law. And now this time Moses has to haul these tablets up the mountain as a serious weight. He wrote on the tablets again, verse 4, like the former writing, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and I came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made, and there they are as the Lord commanded me. Now the sons of Israel set out from Birot, Benyakin, to Moserah, And there Aaron died, and there he was buried, and Eliezer, his son, ministered as priest in his place. And from there, they set out to Gudgoda, and from Gudgoda to Yotpatah, a land of brooks and water, or brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve him, and to bless in his name until this day. Therefore... Levi does not have a portion or an inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. I, moreover, stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, like the first time. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, I read that. Moses just spoke it. From clear, precise memory, what happened, he lays it out before them, reminding them of the whole thing. Man, Moses can preach. Five times, Moses describes the two times that he stood before the Lord as 40 days and 40 nights. And that's significant because every time in Scripture we see 40 days and 40 nights, it is judgment, it is testing, 
It is proving that it's taking place. Judgment, testing, and proving. And I can prove it to you. Genesis chapter 7, the rains of the flood came down 40 days and 40 nights. And in the rains of the flood, humanity was judged, but Noah and family were proven. Both took place. Judgment and proving that they would trust in the Lord. To build a boat at a time when there was no rain. Come on. So Noah proved his faith, was proven in his faith. And then Exodus 24 through 34 at Mount Sinai, Israel was judged 40 days, 40 nights, twice. Israel was judged, Moses and Joshua and even the Levites ultimately were proven. So both are taking place, judgment and and provenness were happening. In Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, Satan was judged when Jesus was 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. Satan was, was judged. The very word that Jesus spoke judged Satan at that time, and Jesus was proven. Oh, not for Jesus' sake, but for yours and for mine, that we could look at him and say, I can trust him. He is solid, tempted and yet without sin. Jesus was proven. By the way, what did both Moses and Jesus do during their 40 days and 40 nights? Hmm? They prayed and fasted. They fasted on the flesh. And they feasted on the word. The whole time, Moses was before the Lord hearing the word of God. It's it's like the word which proceeded from the mouth of God was so filling, so satisfying. He didn't even think to eat. He didn't even bring a protein bar. He's just there before the Lord, enamored of the word, hearing the word, and it fed him. Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness, and then he was tempted by the devil. What's he doing for 40 days and 40 nights? I submit to you he was studying Deuteronomy. Because that's his answer to Satan. And we're going to come back to that on Sunday and talk a little bit more about that. But back in verse 3 of chapter 8 where we started tonight, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How did Moses survive 40 days and nights without bread or water? He had the the word of God. How did did Jesus do it? Same, Same word. Same word. Moses and Jesus... At the end of 40 days and nights, both men would have been physically weak, but spiritually strong. We get those two backwards. But both men, Moses and Jesus, were ready to face temptation, not because they were physically fit, but because they were spiritually strong. They were spiritually ready. It is never physical strength. It's not mental determination. It's not natural preparation that defeats temptation. It's spiritual feeding on the word of God. That's what builds us up and prepares us. Well, again, more on that Sunday morning. But Jesus said it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words, Jesus says, that I have spoken to you are spirit and their life. What what was the temptation that Moses faced? Ever think about that? We know Jesus' temptations after the 40 days, but, but, but what about Moses? And he just reminded us in Exodus 32, verse 10, Moses 
said, the Lord said to him, I will make of you a great nation. What a temptation. What an amazing, I mean, no more children of Israel. That would be history. This, this evening, we wouldn't talk about the children of Israel. We'd talk about the children of Moses. Moses and his generation. Moses who was faithful and God said, I'll make of you a great nation. And it was a proving time for the heart of Moses. Can you imagine Father Moses has many sons? It doesn't work. You need Father Abraham, Father Moses. It does, yeah. The temptation to be great and have a great name. Well, Moses does have a great name, doesn't he? But, but not because he succumbed to the proving, the testing of being made great in that way. He's great because he was a humble servant, because he maintained that humility. He was proven as God's man when he up, upheld, by the way, God's will and God's reputation along with the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, Moses sought to please the Lord. That's a divine moment right there where Moses could have pleased self, tried to satisfy self in the immediate, felt good about self, but it was more important to Moses to please the Lord. Question is, in my 40 days and nights, in your 40 days and nights, will we freak out in the flesh or will we feed on the word? Will you work out for physical endurance or rest in quiet prayer and worship? I'm, I'm in 40 days and 40 nights right now. Cheryl and I together. I'm not going to make a, you know, I'm, I'm tired actually of using our Christopher situation as an example, but it's true. This has been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I am not happy about waiting. I do not want to wait. I hear my own voice come back to me and say, when God doesn't answer what you're asking, you got to wait. And then I argue with myself, but I don't want to wait. Here we are in this, in this process of, of waiting. What am I going to do? How do I deal with this? Freak out in the flesh. Feed on the word. Trust that the same God who has been faithful my entire life is still God and is still faithful. Hebrews 10.36, you have need of endurance. Oh, yeah. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit. I love that verse. <laughs> but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I said that the finger of God wrote something else or will write something else. He has something left to write and he's going to write it on different tablets. Jeremiah chapter 31 Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Oh, where is it? Thought I had it marked. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. Note that. With the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Listen to this. That is a covenant God says I'm going to make with Israel in the latter days. Well, what about the new covenant? Isn't that the new covenant? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The new covenant is already underway. The new covenant was signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus at the last supper, the last Passover, the beginning of our supper. And we are caught up in the new covenant. It is the same covenant that God will then write on the hearts of the people of Israel. See, that answers right there what I've said for years, that when people think about the Jewish people and the church, Israel and Christians, so how does Israel fit into this? And, 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 and those who would say in there, those who believe wrongly, but they believe that just because someone is a Jew, they will naturally be saved because they're God's chosen people. They're Israel. No. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this is proof of that because the new covenant that Jesus gave at that Passover meal began the church at that point is the same new covenant that he's going to write on the hearts of the children of Israel. The Hebrew pastor in Hebrews chapter 8 and 10, I'm not going to go there tonight, but those two chapters, the Hebrew pastor points that out and says, that's the new covenant. That's it. It's already been in play for 2,000 years. And at the end of this age, God is going to take believing in Israel, the believing remnant of Jewish people, and then he's going to write this on their hearts. And what's amazing is you get to have it written on your heart right now. Here tonight, the finger of God writing on your heart and mind that we are of the new covenant. Ezekiel is going to, later he says in chapter 36, verse 26, that God's going to give a new vibrant beating heart of flesh to the people of Israel, a new spirit that is bred, led, and fed by his spirit. He's going to write this on that heart. Well, Verse 12, chapter 10. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, wait a minute. That was our first question. That's where we started tonight. Lord, what pleases you? What do you require? You ever ask the question, what's your will for my life? Is a nice way of saying, God, what do you want from me? <laughs> what is it, Lord? What does the Lord require from you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. For your good. That's the point of the commandments. John rightly said, 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They are for your good. They are for my good, righteousness, holiness, the word of God, acting on these things and applying his word to my life is for my good. It's a better life now and then. John says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, faith and trusting that his commandments are not burdensome. Now these two verses, uh, 12 and 13, are almost repeated by the prophet Micah Micah 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk 
humbly with your God. The hard-hearted see this as a burden. They see Christianity. They see religion. They see the Bible as, as a hassle. Going to church is shackles on your weekend. You know the difference. It is life and freedom and release and peace. And so Moses suddenly just breaks into a rush of praise. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as, as it is this day. Contrast that with the rebellious, stiff-necked stubbornness that he's been calling out this whole sermon. And yet here, here are the chosen ones. So circumcise your heart, verse 16. Stiffen your neck no longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. That's a little odd, right, stuck right in there. No, you can't buy your way in. You can't purchase his favor. He, he loves because that's who he is. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. You shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You know, when I repeat a phrase like bread, led, and fed, I do it because I want it to get in. You know, because in teaching, it's, it's a teaching tool. You, you repeat it, you keep repeating it, you say it over and over, and people keep thinking it. In the middle of the night, you pop open off of your pillow and you go, I can't believe that phrase is still in my head. <laughs> Moses, did you hear it? He repeats a phrase over and over and over in these last several verses, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. Why? He's passing the torch. Moses doesn't say, the Lord my God. Now, he is the Lord Moses' God. He is the Lord his God. And Moses actually uses that phrase, says it that way in other places. The Lord my God spoke to me and told me to tell you. He says that plenty of times. But here, over and over and over, not once does he say the Lord my God. He says the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. He is driving a point home. He wants the Israelites to wake up the next morning and go, the Lord my God. Because that's the point. Moses is passing the torch. This is not just my God. He is not someone else's God. He is your God. This is your God. It's not Pastor Rick's God. Oh, he is. Don't get me wrong. But he's your God. This is personal. Seven times, note that, seven times, the Lord your God. Interesting. He is yours. And I love in verse 21, he is your praise. He is your God. And what does God want from me? Just to be your God. He just wants it to be that personal. And so chapter 11, verse 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God always and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Let's stand together.
one of the challenges of church is that we come out of it recognizing this is, this is my thing. You know? I, 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 when, when people say to me, hey, I, I, I came to your church on Sunday. I'm like, not my church. I mean, it is, but it's not. You know, when, when people have been here six months, I really like coming to your church. Why isn't it your church? But even more so, the Lord is your God. Jesus is your Savior. Oh, yeah, he's, he's my Savior. In fact, I'm his favorite, but, but that's aside. <laughs> you know what? The Lord wants you to know that you are his favorite. That's how it works. If you hear anything out of what we talked about, what Moses preached tonight, if the children of Israel heard anything out of this, it ought to be that he is the Lord, your God. And Father, Lord, I get blessed because I get to stand up here and read your word, talk about it. Lord, I, I get to pray to you like in these moments. And I love my relationship with you. And I love being with you and being able to talk to you. And I love when I am faithless and fretting and stressed out and stupid that you're still there. Lord, I love that when I cry out to you, my will be done, you're still there. When I say, Lord, I want you to please me in this, you've been so patient. Lord, I want to please you. And, and I think I can risk speaking for all of us gathered here tonight that we want to please you. You are our God. Lord Jesus, you are our Savior, my Savior, the only one, and there is no other. We belong to you. So, Lord, whatever it takes, from this point to our raptured day or our dying day, I pray that you will humble us and prove us and teach us and help us to learn what pleases you so that at our end, it'll all be good. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>